0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Out of My Mind podcast. This is Keith Crosby. This is our uh, Friday edition of the podcast where we interview thought leaders and influential people within our culture. As you know, the podcast is about a biblical conversation in a way of things in the culture that uh, challenge us as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. Today we are thrilled to have Mr. Rod Dreher, Mr. Dreher is an influential thought leader, author, blogger, editor. Uh, He can be found online at the American Conservative where he is an editor and a contributor. He has written on a wide range of topics ranging from religion, politics, and of course, the culture. Uh, He's been in publications ranging from The Wall Street Journal, The Los Angeles Times, Men's Health, The National Review, and National Review Online. I believe he also served as the uh, chief film critic of the New York Post. He's been on CNN, Fox News and even MSNBC, which must have been a great rodeo ride there. <laughs> and he's also been on all things considered with national Public Radio. Uh, Rod lives with his family in Louisiana with his wife and three children. and he's written some incredible books, uh, How Dante Can Save Your Life. Uh, 2017's The Benedict Option, which David Brooks at the New York Times called one of the, the most important book of the dec- most important religious book of the decade. And last September, his latest book, uh, Live Not by Lies, which is, uh, I think, inspired by the Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, essay by the same title. Uh, Mr. Dreher, welcome. It is a privilege and a thrill to have you today.
1: Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to talk about these uh, ideas with fellow believers.
0: So, uh, obviously, I've read the book. You wrote the book. Tell us why you wrote the book and why.
1: Well, back in 2015, I got a phone call from a physician in Minnesota. He said, sir, you don't know me, but I feel like I have to tell somebody this. My mother is quite old. She's an immigrant to America. She came here from Czechoslovakia. And when she was young, uh, she was put into prison for four years by the Communists for practicing her Christian faith. And she's now telling me and my wife that the things she sees happening in America now remind her of what she left behind in communist Czechoslovakia. Well, I thought that was really kind of over the top, you know, really communism in America. So I contacted this couple I know in the UK who defected from Hungary, communist Hungary in the 1960s. I put the story to them and said, is this Czech woman onto something or is she nuts? They said oh no she's telling you the truth we're seeing the same thing here every single day when we see what's happening in the media and in in our institution their academics we say it's just like what we left behind well i asked them what is it specifically and they said primarily it's having to be afraid of everything you say of uh, that, that anything you say will be used against you to cost you your job to drive you out of society to marginalize you that's exactly what it was like when communism started So over the next few years, whenever I would travel around the country to give speeches for my other work, and I would meet somebody who grew up under communism, I would put the same question to them. Every single one of them said, yes, it's coming, and we can't get Americans to take it seriously. So that's the genesis of the book. I, first of all, asked them what it was they see coming, because it's not going to be Stalinism 2.0, and then the second half of the book has uh, stories from people in those countries. I traveled to Russia and uh, the former countries of Eastern Europe, asking Christians who fought under hard totalitarianism, how we can prepare ourselves.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I have a fr- I have friends in the former Soviet Union, uh, friends in uh, communist China, uh, a family that uh, was connected to my church. Uh, their parents left California for Texas, because it reminded them of the old country, so to speak. And yeah. so, I'm hearing this from my friends. I have a friend who's, uh, when he was 14, his father was arrested uh, by the KGB, taken away. Uh, he began, he had to fill his father's role in a church at 14 because they'd arrested everybody 15 and up. He pastors a Russian speaking church in the Pacific <laughs> Northwest. And he's telling me the same thing that basically that that you've described here. And uh, it won't be Stalin 2.0, uh, but it's this soft totalitarianism that you talk about in the book. And you know, as I look at it, whether it's woke capitalism, the academy, the news media, uh, canceling and social media, people losing their jobs, even if they have tenure or people here at Google or Facebook losing their jobs for not speaking the party line. At the end of the day, I wonder if, and I'd like you to comment on this, if, hard totalitarianism and soft totalitarianism one is like being shot with a cannon the other one's like being shot with a rifle but being shot is being shot at the end of the day
1: right it's interesting you say that i was just out in austin texas for an event and one of the men who came to the event had moved to texas from california he used to work for google there in silicon valley and he was saying the same thing he said once i've realized what Google was actually doing. And I realized that I worked for the smartest people in the world mm-hmm. and they couldn't stop it if they wanted to. Uh, he said, that's when I realized I had to get out. Uh, I, I think that maybe it's an important to draw a distinction between hard totalitarianism and soft. Uh, when I say hard totalitarianism, I mean what most of us think of as totalitarianism period. You know, we, you and I both grew up in the cold war. And when we think of totalitarianism, we think of the Soviet Union, of gulags, of secret police, of Orwell's 1984. That's not what's coming. What's coming instead is something that will be more like Aldous Huxley's uh, Brave New World in which the totalitarian worldview was enforced not by pain and terror, but by manipulating people's status and comfort. And uh, I I think that we're we're seeing right now in this society, a, a sort of therapeutic totalitarianism where they come in and say, we're doing this to make Make the workplace or our university safer and more comfortable for marginalized people. It's all jargon to, to, that is being used to cloak the idea of of, uh, of coming down hard uh, on people's freedom of thought and freedom of religion. Totalitarianism, at its most basic, uh, is a system in which everything in society is politicized. This can happen in a police state, as in the Soviet Union or in China, but it can also happen in a liberal democracy, and that's what we're seeing happen now.
0: Yeah, you know, I uh, I think of and you you said use the word therapeutic. One of the one of the banes of my existence is uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, and I've heard <laughs> you mention it before, and uh, I've read it. You know, I look at it; it's birthed, I believe, in the uh, Protestant youth groups. Pretty much, when you look at the research that was done in 2015, that's where they first identified it. Those two sociologists, but even it's it's like a cancer that spread everywhere. And I think it, you know, you have this perfect storm coming within the church and from outside the church, because everybody wants to be nice. I was looking at uh, Pope Francis's comments after the uh, debut of his uh, 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 documentary on him, Francesco, and uh, October I think of 2019, 2019 I think it was. Um, and he talked about the need for gay civil unions because, basically, because we want to be nice. And mm-hmm. I think that the soft totalitarianism in woke capitalism and is is a first cousin of this because we're doing all these things for good reasons: being anti-racist, being nice to people, and anyone with a conviction of any kind is not nice. And I guess my fear is when i look back over history whether it's the french revolution where they were going to you know they get fraternity egalite you know the whole thing mm-hmm. and when i look at the russian revolution in 1917 when i look at the cultural revolution the great Leap forward when i look at all these revolutions they're striving for utopia mm-hmm. they were allegedly they're doing good things throwing off the czar building an agrarian society whatever it was even national socialism in germany was mm-hmm. trying to do ostensibly in their minds at least a good thing And dissidents ultimately become viewed, almost to use the terms of a pandemic, like a contagion.
1: Exactly right.
0: And when they can't control it, they always break totalitarian, hard totalitarian, and try to eliminate it. Any thoughts on that?
1: No, you're exactly right. But one thing that I think is going to make this, going to allow them to keep it soft in terms of not having to arrest people is technology, Mm. specifically the social credit system. Mm. Uh, your listeners may may know that China has something called the social credit system in which they use the incredible computing power of the state and artificial intelligence to monitor everything that every single Chinese citizen does online with their smartphones or their, the internet. And in China, it's almost a fully cashless society. So you have to use your phone or the internet in order to, to participate in the economy. Well, the Chinese government maintains a file on each and every Chinese citizen, an electronic file. It takes in this data that it hoovers up every single day from the cloud and runs it through algorithms and assigns to each Chinese citizen a social credit rating. If you get a high social credit rating, like say you've downloaded the speeches of Xi Jinping, well then you get a higher rating, you have more privileges. You can go to the best restaurant, your kids can get into the best colleges and so forth but the lower your social credit rating, the more constricted your freedom is in society and in in the economy, down to the point where they can even prevent you from buying or selling. Now for Christians, That should set off alarm bells because we know from the book of Revelation that uh, in the last days the Antichrist will be able to forbid people from buying or selling unless they take the mark of the beast. This is the kind of thing that when I was a kid it would seem so far out into the future. How in the world would they do that? Well the Chinese have figured out how to do it. Here's the thing, in the United States we have the technological capability to do implement the social credit system here already and perfectly legally Big companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook and others, they get the same data that we generate and they use it to sell us things. How hard would it be for them to decide who the deplorables are and who forms uh, a threat to the good order of society and suddenly make it difficult or impossible for us to participate in the economy? This is going to be, it's not only a possibility now, I think it is an inevitability uh, as we go into the future, and Christians and everybody who values their freedom need to wake up to this.
0: You know, you you make a good point. I remember reading in USA Today, in the early days of the pandemic, or maybe midway through, depending on how far we are down the road in the pandemic, uh, they had uh, some, uh, an uh, an editorial, an op-ed written by a number of doctors, and they demanded full compliance, you know, mandatory vaccines, you know, and I'm not an anti-vax person or anything like that. But what they did say was there would be no exclusions, you know, Mm -hmm. no religious exclusions, no exclusions for reason of conscience or concern. And then they gave a list of a series of uh, sanctions that could be brought to bear Mm -hmm. both in the private sector And also by the government, whether it was a forfeiture of certain tax uh, benefits Mm -hmm. or whether it was excluding people from access to arenas or whatever. Uh, And part of it was requiring some sort of identification or health certificate or or who knows what. Mm -hmm. But it it just seems like there's this uh, perfect storm, this conflation of forces that are coming together. And we are mostly, as a society, happy to conform. You know, we've we've given our identities and all of our privacy away to the social media. And and social media is very influential. Have you seen the movie uh, uh, The Social Social Dilemma? Dilemma. Exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah, they, in The Social Dilemma, they drew a lot on the work of Shoshana Zuboff, who wrote a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Mm-hmm. I draw on that book, too, and uh, in my book, Live Not By Lies, but I recommend to everyone, watch that movie. You will be shocked by how much information we all give away to to people who do not mean us well. When I was in Prague in uh, the Czech Republic, interviewing a woman named Camilla Bendova, Camilla mm-hmm. is an older woman now. She and her husband, her late husband Václav, were uh, the only Christians in the inner circle of Václav Havel and the other top dissidents mm-hmm. under the communist regime. And uh, Cam- I was noticed. Camilla was sitting there as I was interviewing her, and she had a dumb phone, you know, a little old-style flip phone next to her. I said, "Where's your smartphone?" She said, nobody in my family will have smartphones because if you've been through what we have been through under communism, you would know that there is no such thing as the innocent taking of information. Mm -hmm. And uh, she pointed on the wall to kind of a scar on on the living room wall where she said she and her husband, after the fall of communism, they had ripped out the wires that the secret police had put into their home to monitor them. And she said, you know, we're not going back to that. When, when people, she said, when people give away their personal information uh, online, she said, no, nope, but somebody's collecting that. And whether you think you're guilty of anything or not, sooner or later, if they want to make a case against you, they're going to do that. And, um, It just, it was really stunning to me because I'm sitting there with my smartphone recording her and uh, but realizing that this woman has seen it and she knows what's happening. And I'll tell you something else too. This is something brand new that I've not even written about yet. One of my readers sent me uh, the, the handbook for diversity training at Brown University, one of our Ivy League schools. It's absolutely chilling. It is a perfect example of how soft totalitarianism works. The thing the, the, the everybody at Brown has to go through this, all the faculty, you have to talk about your own, start out by talking about writing it down, your own ideas about race and diversity and so on and so forth. You're giving, they're making you confess mm-hmm. where you, where you're coming from. And so by that simple exercise, they have a written record of if you have deplorable ideas, you know, and they want to be able to make sure that you are thinking correctly. If in the future, they decide that, uh, that they don't want to have anybody who was ever tainted by wrong thinking. They've got your own written confession there. But it's all being done, you see, to make it make this a safer place, a more open and inclusive place. People are gonna fall for it.
0: Oh no, I, I tell you well, you know, you're talking about falling for it in the Bendis. Uh my wife and I, we watched the old classic 1984s, Richard Burton and John Hurt just a, a few a few weeks ago, and we were looking at the telescreen you know, and everything. And I looked on my, in my bedroom and I have an Alexa in there and nobody forced that telescreen on me. I took it voluntarily. It was a Christmas gift uh, a while back, you know, speaking yeah. of Christmas. But I, I look at it and uh, uh, my daughter, one of my daughters is was a, uh, admitted to a conservatory in the Northeast, I won't give the name of it. She's a violinist or was. Um, they had a number to report students for not thinking in the right way in every dormitory at a conservative. Music, music. I mean, you know, this is the highest levels. I mean, to get into this place, you had to compete against hundreds of hundreds of people from around the world. And they had a a number to report people who did not think the right way. And it's just a
1: and you yeah. see what they're doing. They're 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 making us think that that is the right way to behave, to snitch sure. on people for thinking wrong thoughts is the right way to behave. And I mean, it, it just blows my mind. I was in college in the 1980s and I have a college student son now. The idea that students would run to the authorities to get them to come punish some other student mm-hmm. was just unthinkable back right. then. But now, you know, I I think one of the key moments in the transition between from a free society, which we were, to whatever we're becoming now, happened in the fall of 2015. And you can see all this happen on YouTube. It happened at Yale University. Uh, There was a a controversy over Halloween costumes. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Erica Christakis and her husband, Nicholas Christakis, well-respected older faculty members, they were also house parents in one of these colleges. And uh, Erica Christakis sent out a note to all the students in the college saying, you know, maybe it's not a good idea for Yale to be telling grown people what kind of costumes they can and can't wear. The students mobbed her, jumped mm-hmm. on her, accused her of being racist and on and on. What's on YouTube is a confrontation her husband Nicholas had on the quad with a mob of these social justice warrior students. And there is poor Nicholas Christakis, white haired guy, baby boomer, trying to engage the students in actual reason, reason dialogue. They're not having it. They're screaming at him. They're cursing him. They're crying. They're having a complete emotional fit. And of course, Yale University surrendered to the mob against their own faculty members. That is a tremendously important moment because it showed the power of the mob when it's uh, armed with uh, righteous outrage and uh, progressive politics.
0: Well, we see how the mob treated uh, Socrates in the good old days, right? I mean, it's you know, watching that there's this young woman, particularly in that video, who's just, she one moment she's laughing and talking to somebody and the next moment it's outrage, like two minutes right. of hate, you know? Right,
1: uh, that's it, the two minutes hate from Orwell. That's yeah. exactly what it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about being a Christian dissident because that's what really fascinated me. One is the choice of words, you know, dissident versus counter-revolutionary or activist, you know. I I think of the culture war and I, one of the things I really appreciate about your writing, you talk about how how whatever a conservative Christian is, you know, that's a big word, that's like love, you know. <laughs> um they put their faith in the wrong messiahs, whether it was Republican Party, whether it was Mm -hmm. politics, whether it was Donald Trump, whatever, whoever, Mm -hmm. whatever. And the culture war is over. I mean, Obergefell versus Hodges, you have the uh, other case with uh, trans rights in the workplace, which could affect religious institutions, churches, Mm -hmm. universities, seminaries. Uh, The culture war is over. If, If it wasn't over before those two cases, it certainly is over now. And so we are truly, as it says in First Peter, aliens and strangers. You know, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully our conduct will be excellent among the Gentiles, so to speak, upon those who differ with us and don't think the way we do or believe as we do. Uh, but I, I really take a few moments to just talk about living as a dissident because I really appreciated that from yeah. from the bendas and and their experiences to, you know, family as a bedrock of resistance, to religion as resistance. Just yeah. share a little bit of that with us, if you don't mind.
1: Well, I, I think that uh, in the situation we find ourselves, we are going to have to look to the Bible, to the Old Testament, for an example of how to live. Think of the Hebrews in their Babylonian exile. We know from Jeremiah 29 that they were called to, you know, pray for the peace of the city, work for the common good. But we also know from the book of Daniel, when the three young Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who worked for the king, you can't be more embedded in society than working for the king. When they were asked to bow down before the grave and idol, they chose the prospect of death before apostasy. So I, I tell my Christian friends, what we need to do is start cultivating within ourselves and in our families and in our churches, Whatever it was that those Hebrews in exile had that allowed them to be a blessing to the city, but also to know ultimately who their Lord really was and what was required of them. The dissidents I write about in Live Not By Lies were Christians in all these communist countries who knew that in order to be faithful to Christ under this totalitarian atheist regime, they were going to have to stand up. Uh, in whatever way it was called for, and to risk prison. Some of them went to prison for what they did. But the thing that animated them most of all was a love of truth, and of course, truth embodied in Jesus Christ, but also a willingness to suffer. Mm. That was the main thing I heard from all of them, whether they were Protestant, Catholic, or Eastern Orthodox. The willingness to suffer made all the difference, because I, I remember standing on the, in the street in Moscow, uh, in the snow talking to a, a russian baptist pastor i had uh, been interviewing him for 2 hours in a coffee shop and as we parted he told me he said you've got to make sure go home and tell the american church if you're not prepared to suffer for the faith even suffer unto death you're not going to make it and that's really true and that's goes straight to the thing you were saying earlier about moralistic therapeutic deism and moralistic therapeutic deism which as you mentioned Christian Smith the sociologist said is the de facto religion of all American Christians being nice and being happy or the uh, that's the summum bonum the greatest good of life but that's not Christianity Christianity wants us you know God God doesn't want us to be miserable but if it comes down to uh, committing grave evil or dying we are expected to give our life in witness to Christ. And if we're not prepared to give our lives, how are we, or if we're not prepared to give up our jobs or give up social status and or give up our freedom, how are we gonna be prepared to give up our lives for the sake of the gospel? This is the sort of thing we have to be thinking about and talking about among ourselves right now, not five years down the road, because we don't know when this is go- when things are going to get really hard. I, I dedicate the book to a Catholic priest named Father Tomislav Kolakovic. Father Kolakovich died in 1990, I think it was. But uh, in 1943, he was working in Zagreb, Croatia, his home country, doing work against the Nazis. He got a tip that the gestapo was coming for him so he sneaked out of the country and went to nearby slovakia which was his mother's homeland and adopted her last name kolakovich to hide out he started teaching at a catholic university there and he told his students he said the good news is the germans are going to lose this war the bad news is when it's over with the soviets are going to be ruling this country and the first thing the communists are going to do is to come after the churches." So what he did was he organized student groups uh, within the university to come together for prayer, but also to talk amongst themselves about what was happening in society around them and how they, as Christians, as faithful Christians, could resist if oppression came. They spread these groups all around the country. Every town of any size in Slovakia within two years had one of these prayer groups. The Catholic bishops warned Father Kolakovich, oh, you're scaring people, you're being too alarmist, it'll never get that bad. But that priest had studied the communist mindset because he wanted to do missionary work in the Soviet Union. Sure enough, when the Iron Curtain fell in that country, the first thing the communists did they came after the churches, and Father Kolakovich's underground network was the way the underground church survived, and it was the only meaningful resistance to totalitarianism for the next 40 years. Hmm. I think we're in a Kolokovich moment here in America now, and we had better use the liberty we still have to start uh, putting these networks together right this minute.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, my Russian friend in the Pacific Northwest told me the same thing basically. He said, you need to start, you can't cram for crisis, you can't cram for life, you can't cram for spirituality, Uh, and he said, you need to begin organizing, whether it's five or 10 or 15 years, it is coming. He, he said, I never thought I'd live to see this in America. He's a, a uh, Russian fellow.
1: Uh, but isn't that incredible? Can I just ask you, why is it that we won't listen to him? Why are Americans so afraid to take these people seriously?
0: I, I don't know. This is, it drives me crazy because I have a friend. He planted three churches in the Czech Republic before he retired. And it took a lot in some cases because the Czech Republic is like the most atheist, you already know this, the most atheistic nation in the world. These people had survived the Cold War and to get them to come out of their shell, but we've had freedom. We haven't had the soul-crushing weight of the of socialism and Marx communism. Socialism Mm -hmm. is communism without the gun stuck in your face. Yeah, you know. Uh, We haven't had that. And yet, as we both observed, uh, we're just giving it all away, yeah. just so, just willingly. And I think it comes back to comfort. All of yeah. our problems are first world. Getting stuck at a red light, we don't know what it means to suffer. And I think in the in the American church, you have this this track that existed for some years, and it did a lot of good. But Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, yeah, that's not true. He's called you to suffer. He does have a wonderful plan. It isn't maybe what you have in mind. It may be laying down your life for your friends, you know, and that level of sacrifice. And you talk about embracing sacrifice in your book. That is what we're called to do. We're called to suffer. You know, 1 Peter is all about suffering, being on the wrong side of the culture.
1: And and nobody, you're not going to get far preaching a sermon in America about that. But that is how the church, if it survives, is going to survive by those who are willing to carry the cross to the end, you know. I, I was just thinking today as you and I are talking. I was looking at uh, something happening at my own alma mater, at Louisiana State mm-hmm. University. their uh, there, the faculty senate is considering forcing all students to take a class in um, uh, anti-racism, and mm-hmm. you know, it's it is ideological indoctrination. Sure. And uh, I was just thinking about how how it is that so many conservatives like me you know, we follow what's happening on TV, we send out tweets, we you know, we, we get ourselves all riled up by what's happening on TV and thinking that if we just vote for the right people at the national level, everything's going to be okay. Meanwhile, the left is marching through the institutions mm-hmm. unopposed, you know, while we are so distracted by you know, protests, the election, blah, blah, blah. And it's not that we shouldn't be concerned about national politics. I think it's important, but it's that so many things are happening at the local level that we're completely distracted by.
0: Yep. You know, it reminds me, years ago, I read the book, uh, Slashing Toward Gomorrah by Robert Bork, and people right, may not right. remember Robert Bork getting hammered for his but basically he talked about that the left had infected or infested all the institutions, higher learning, you know, non-governmental organizations, civil service, and, and Christians and other people of faith have been asleep at the switch while... Our children have been effectively, in K- I homeschooled mine, uh, indoctrinated. Uh, we have Sorry. young people who love Jesus, uh, but they are happy to be anti-racist, happy to be cultural Marxist, and they don't understand their faith because we've done a poor job of that. And, you know, in your book, you talk about the family being the key to all that, you know, and uh, the Czech father sitting his son down after he comes home telling about all the glories of communism and the Soviets and everything. As we sit here now, just to wrap up, one last question uh, or maybe two. Um, So here we sit, the election's done, Uh, it's all over, people put their faith in all kinds of things, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. As you sit here and now and you look down the road, if you are a prophet or the son of a prophet, what do you see coming in the next 10 years?
1: Well, uh, we're going to see a Democratic administration in January, and I, if the Democrats gain the Senate, it, it all depends on the January 5th uh, Senate race in Georgia, mm-hmm. if Democrats gain control of the Senate, we're going to see an accelerated crackdown on religious liberty in the name of LGBT rights, no question about that, as well as uh, so-called anti-racism, which I believe is really racism, but yes, you know, that I agree. this is what the Democratic Party is for, but also, and this is key, this ideology has captured our institutions, including corporate America. Mm. Uh, And it is breathtaking how uniform this this has become. I think that Christians are going to see themselves persecuted. Uh, We're going to be excluded from the professions, uh, unless we're willing to compromise our faith on when it comes to transgenderism or abortion, things like that. But we are going to find ourselves economically marginalized. And if there is any kind of violence, God forbid, but if there's any kind of violence that they can pin on conservatives, I think the establishment, by which I mean the state, uh, the media, uh, universities, and big business are going to coalesce to implement some kind of social credit system. Mm -hmm. I don't know when this is gonna happen, but I think it is inevitable. I think we should resist it as much as we can, and we should be pressing our representatives, whether they're Democratic or especially if they're Republican, to get busy reining in big tech and trying to uh, build walls to protect religious liberty. But I, I gotta tell you, I have so little faith in the Republicans. I remember back in 2015, and I wrote about this in my last book, The Benedict Option, After the Obergefell ruling, a few months after, I I went to, um, I was on Capitol Hill and went to speak to a Christian group in Congress of staffers and then had a private meeting with some key Republican staffers who were also practicing Christians from both the Senate and the House. And I said, okay, we lost the Obergefell ruling. That was a big blow. But uh, so what are you and the Republican party going to do now to protect religious liberty of dissenters? Silence. Ah. I said, really, What, what, what are you gonna do? they said, this is not on our agenda. This was five years ago. And I I remember leaving that meeting, walking across the parking lot in front of the Capitol, thinking we Christians really are on our own because these Republicans were not going to offend donors. And they were all terrified of being called bigots. I hope that we can find some now five years later who, who find a backbone, but I'm not confident. I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful, and maybe I can close on this because it's important for Christians to know. The difference between optimism and hope is this. People who are optimistic think everything is going to turn out for the best, but that we hope so, but we're, we're not guaranteed any of that. People who are hopeful hope that things turn out for the best, but if they don't, Hopeful people know that even suffering, when it's done for the sake of Christ and done in a, in a spirit of love, of sacrificial love, that the Lord can use that for the good, for the for redemption of the world. So uh, I I tell people, if be realistic, be hopeful. Optimism is unrealistic at this point, but hope is the only thing we have, and it will carry us through. That and faith in Christ. You preach
0: it, and I'll turn the page. Well said. Well said. <laughs>
1: Uh, Rod Dreher, where can
0: people find you on the internet? Work. I, I said I gave some locations already, but talk about your book and uh, and uh, I have commended it to my listeners two or three times. But this is a chance for a Rodrera commercial. So,
1: <laughs> thank you. Well, well I, I blog. Uh, I blog every day at theamericanconservative.com/slash/drera. D R E H E R. You can also find me on Twitter at Rod Dreher, R-O-D-D-R-E-H-E-R. If you go to my Twitter page, I have pinned to the top a free downloadable study guide for Live Not By Lies. I I wrote that to help uh, Christian groups and families study the book, and it's there for you. Also, I've just started a Substack where I, I, it's a newsletter that I use to talk mostly about spiritual things and literature. It's roddreer.substack.com. So I'm all over the place.
0: All right. Well, thank you for making time in your schedule for this podcast. Uh, God bless you. You have a great day. Thanks so much.
1: Oh, it was great to be here. It's always good to talk to brothers and sisters in Christ because we're going to need each other a, a great deal in the days to come. So I appreciate this. Well, Keith, that was a great interview. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing you and Rod uh, dialoguing back and forth. And,
0: you know, the irony of all of this is it. we recorded this interview before the Capitol riots had taken place. And I think, you know, now that they have, and we discussed this uh, a couple weeks ago in our podcast about the Capitol riots, but you get to see some of what Rod is talking about almost prophetically, uh, in quotation marks there, um, coming to light today. Well, that's it. You know, now we're not prophets, of course, or the sons of prophets, but you, when you look at what Rod was concerned about, he goes, you know, if there's some act of violence, it's going to accelerate the process. And it did. You had the whole parlor thing, you have people cracking down. It's, you know, this is a book. This was an interview for our time. This is our first interview for interview, interview Friday. And I'm really thankful that he was the first guy to go because he really lays it out for us really, really well. Yeah. And we also have some upcoming interviews. I know that uh, we've got Vodi Bacham on the schedule. That's right. We have Vodi Bacham in February. And I think we're going to have James White, the theologian and apologist, James White in march and so this is looking good this is interview friday the last friday of every month now if you would like further resources you can visit us online because we'll have some links to some of rod dreher's books if you'd like to ask me a question as always email me at keith at hillside.org keith at hillside.org i try to answer emails within 24 hours You can learn more about Hillside Church at www.hillside.org. You can watch our worship services online, or you can attend in person. And again, as always, if you're listening on any of the major platforms, the podcast platforms, please give us a five-star rating so that we can reach and help more people with this information. So, this is Keith Crosby with Mark Stickler, Out of My Mind, our first interview podcast God bless you and God keep you.